Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we take an in-depth look at fiction and non-fiction books with a folklore focus, and meet their authors. Today I'm joined by Melinda Salisbury to discuss her new young adult novel, Her Dark Wings, a radical reimagining of the myth of Persephone. Corey and Bree's friendship has always been unbreakable. Or so Corey thought, until Bree betrays her in the worst way possible. And then Bree's sudden death leaves Corey heartbroken and furious. But the underworld calls to Corey too. Enraptured by the passionate furies, she is taken to the realm of a god who is unyielding, cold, and irritatingly arrogant. It will change her, because the more she learns about herself, the more Corey's own power stirs. But can she resist her darkness within? Melinda Salisbury is the three-time Carnegie-nominated and best-selling author of multiple young adult novels, including the Sin Eater's Daughter series, The State of Sorrow duology, Hold Back the Tide, and Her Dark Wings. Her first novel, The Sin Eater's Daughter, was the best-selling UK young adult debut novel of 2015, and collectively her books have been nominated and shortlisted for numerous national and international awards, including the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, the YA Book Prize, the Branford Bowes, the Edgar Awards, the 2016 and 2019 and 2021 Carnegie Medals, YALSA Best Young Adult 2022, Eason's Young Adult Book of the Month, and more. Her books have been published in 15 countries to date. She joined me recently to discuss her latest novel. So, Mel, hi, welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be part of this. Thank you. I'm glad you're excited. Uh, Before we start talking proper about... um, the subject of today's book club, your forthcoming book, Her Dark Wings. Can I get you first to just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of how you became interested in working with folklore in your writing as well and where those interests lie? Well, um, gosh, my background, um, up until I became an author, I wasn't very good at life at all um <laughs> I wasn't very good it turns out I'm not very good at working for the people <laughs> um I'm not very interested in working for the people the only thing I ever want to do is is write stories and read stories and um, so it's a good job and um, I finally fell into authoring because I'd probably be very unhappy if I didn't um before that I yeah I held down a series of and it was a series of not great jobs that um, sometimes I was asked to leave because my lack of commitment was very obvious. Um, I grew up in Coventry, which is in the West Midlands. Um, and now I live by the sea, which feels a little more folkloric. But I think there is a lot of folklore around Coventry in the West Midlands. Um, so maybe, maybe it started there. I don't remember not being interested in folklore. Um, I was the kind of kid who liked to spend a lot of time outside, a lot of time in the woods, a lot of time reading about things that might live in the woods. So a lot of my early folklore came from kind of the idea of fairies, um, but not pretty or sexy fairies, but the, the, <laughs> the mean, bloodthirsty, tricksy kind who would not fall in love with you, but would kill you or make you dance for 17,000 years for their own amusement and then dump you back in a world that has long since changed. 
Um, so arguably the best sort of fairies. I, I think so. Like, I'm not very interested yeah. in sexy, pretty fairies who are avatars for <laughs> the boyfriend you wish she had. I want... No, I want I want danger when I go into the woods. Um, I want excitement. I want I want a space that feels liminal. Um, and I think that's another thing I like a lot about folklore is it all feels liminal. It all feels like a threshold between what we know and what we feel, or what we suspect, or what we're afraid of. So. Yes, absolutely. That's something that comes up time and again, isn't it? Within within folklore, is the importance of these liminal spaces and these these boundaries. Uh, and I guess that that's also quite important in in terms of the underlying story, which which you're retelling in Her Dark Wings as well. Now, this book is based on the myth of Persephone. Um, so before before we talk about your own take on that, there, there may be people who aren't overly familiar with the story of Persephone. So can I ask you to just kind of summarise the original myth first before we look at your work with it? Well, no, because there is no original version of the myth. There are many, many versions. It's one of those myths and one of those tales that has been handed down so many times that it has changed. So whoever you like depending on who you ask you'll you'll get a a different version but i will give you the probably most common version which is that the maiden persephone the goddess of spring daughter of demeter is in her beautiful bountiful fields and she's spotted by hades and hades is like she's very pretty i think i would quite like to marry her i shall ask my brother if that's a it's appropriate his brother of course Zeus king of the gods so he goes to Zeus can I marry Persephone and Zeus is like oh, I don't know how Demeter's going to feel about that she's got this whole thing about Persephone not getting involved in the gods um and Demeter of course is like no this is <laughs> absolutely not happening but Zeus loves his brother although Demeter is you know, technically his sister too um it's like do you know what if you take it out I'm not going to stand in your way I'm just gonna I'm just gonna not my circus not my monkeys this basically so Hades does, he bursts out of the ground in his fiery chariot, driven by his four horses, kidnaps Persephone down to the underworld. Um, and there she remains. Um, Demeter, obviously bereft, lost her daughter, refuses to do her job as the goddess of the harvest. So there is no food. The mortals start to get a bit leery. Zeus starts panicking because they're very low on worship. And if Zeus needs anything, he needs worship. So he goes to Hades is like, dude, come on. <laughs> You're going to have to give her back. It's not going so well for us. Um, but it's too late. Hades, in his infinite clever wisdom, has fed Persephone six or four pomegranate seeds, binding her to the underworld. And so now she has the dual task of kind of living six months in the underworld with Hades as his queen, as his equal, more to the point, and then six months on Earth being her mother's daughter, which is, it's one version of it, and Hades doesn't come out of that very well, but there are other versions where kind of Persephone is quite amenable to being taken away because she's very tired of living under her mother's thumb and just being asked to frolic in gardens with nymphs and not do anything kind of fun or cool, and Hades is offering her equality, like, when she's the queen of Hades, she's his equal. She's not like Hera in Olympus, a queen pretty much only in name. She is an equal. She has influence. She can make judgments. She can make alterations. She has her own cult. Um, and that's the version of the myth I was more interested in. Less the poor defenseless damsel taken by a wicked man, but more the girl who kind of wants to find her place in the world and that takes the first most interesting route that comes along to it. 
which is which is an ideal take to to follow for um somebody who writes predominantly i i guess for a a young adult market as well it's a, it's that kind of empowering and and looking for your place in society side which which is great to focus on isn't it now i'm going to ask you to to summarize again um your take on this story in her dark wings but obviously as far as we can without offering up any spoilers because unless you're in the fortunate position like i was to have a review copy of the book in advance people won't actually have read this yet all right i will try to trust my younger (laughs) in yeah (laughs) yes absolutely I, i i don't know you've you've been carnegie shortlisted on more than one occasion i think the dangers of you trashing your own career are probably <laughs> quite slight but at the, at the same time let, let's try and give people um a, a chance to read without spoilers but yeah do do your best to kind of summarize your take on it all right well it is set in the modern world but it is a modern world where christianity didn't have its huge kind of rise to predominance so instead of having the monotheistic christian god we have kind of the multi theistic i don't know how you say that we have a huge canon we have the canon of the greek gods and they have become the predominant white western religion um and so society kind of works but in the same way that we have progressed to a point where science is making religion feel less and less like the explanation to to the mysteries of the universe this has happened in in this world too so Corey, who's the protagonist of the book, lives in a world where the Greek gods exist and are worshipped and the rites are mainly followed as we follow Christian rites for weddings, funerals, kind of like specific festivals. But by and large, she doesn't really think about the gods at all. They're not a huge part of her life. She's not wandering around in kind of a toga, kind of like relishing the mysteries of Artemis or whatever. She's a modern teenager. She has a boyfriend. They have a relationship. She has a best friend. And then the best friend betrays her with the boyfriend and everything that she has ever loved this 17 year old girl who has built her life around these people it's gone it's taken from her and it turns her very dark inside um and her darkness ends up causing or maybe not causing um something quite bad to happen and then she draws the attention of of creatures that live in the underworld which unbeknownst to her one of the entrances to is very close to where she lives and so as she kind of explores this darkness in herself um she becomes more and more drawn into life in the underworld and encounters Hades who is not overly thrilled by the idea of this this girl being in his realm influencing things and so they clash and she clashes with um her her former best friend again and it's just a big old mess of anger and fury and rage and love and flowers. <laughs> it's a good mix, isn't it? It's a good mix. So which, which characters in particular did you choose to, to focus on from the kind of um, mythological or, fo- or folkloric side of the original story? And, and how did you develop those to become your own? Um, well, Hades, obviously. Um, and I... Mm-hmm. He's a difficult character because he's one of the nicer Greek gods, believe it or not. Like he's one of the least <laughs> um, cancelable Greek gods in terms of his behavior. Like he doesn't do a lot of the terrible things that the others do. But because he's the god of kind of death in the underworld, he gets a pretty bad rap. So I always knew if I was going to kind of 
write about Greek gods specifically. He was the only one I could write about without kind of whitewashing <laughs> the horrors of him because he's, you know, he's basically a decent guy. He he listens to criticism. He he's very good at his job as the ruler of the underworld. Um, but I wanted to make him someone who was very lonely because I can imagine it must be very lonely to be part of this huge pantheon. But because he, he's technically not an Olympian because he's the god of the underworld. So he's a sibling. He went through the obviously the wars with the Titans with everyone and then got a kingdom. It sounds really great on the surface, but oh, your kingdom's the underworld, you're subject to the dead and you creep everyone out. So maybe could you just stay there a little bit? And I wanted so I wanted to give him something nice. <laughs> like something good yeah. um Corey obviously is Corey the maiden from the myth before she becomes Persephone um and I think it's a little of what you were saying about kind of writing in a way that's empowering so I wanted to give her I wanted to give her a story where she had more agency than she's perhaps had previously where as I was saying earlier she isn't kidnapped necessarily and taken away um that it's kind of more of a a mutually beneficial arrangement that that's come to and I knew I wanted to make her a modern kind of girl because I think the choices Persephone makes in the myth if she did make choices um are modern choices like do I do I follow my potential dream and become a queen and ascend as high as I can or do I I don't know stick it out with the job I have um knowing that I'll always be a little bit under my mother's thumb um so they're the two main mythological characters um, I use the Furies as well, um, but again, I, I altered them because they don't get such a great, <laughs> such a great time in the mystery. And you know, all they do is kind of arbitrate justice um, when necessary. They can't act unless unless they're permitted to by the actions of a wrongdoer. So they're not malicious. They're not, and I, that was important to me in the book. In fact, for all of the characters, to there are no villains in this book. There are no heroes either, for sure. Everyone is um, a little bit morally grey, I think is the term. Um, but I didn't I didn't want villains, so I was very careful when I was writing them and writing Hades um to not to not villainize them, to humanize the inhuman as far as you can. Um and then there are cameos of gods as well. Hecate makes an appearance, although she's never named on page as Hecate, but I think that's a treat for anyone who knows the myths. And again, Corey's mother's never named, but the clues are left enough so you'd be like oh yeah that's Demeter like she's left this girl at the end of the world hopefully so she won't be seen she's very keen on the idea of no one noticing her and um, so they were Hermes of course Hermes I always forget him and it's horrible because he's one of my favorites because he's quite a sweet kid and in the book I wanted to make him again like Hades he's someone who because he he has this connection to the underworld is is a little bit ostracized at times, like not taken quite seriously as the other gods. Um, and so I tied that into his character and his role with the underworld. The fact he straddles the two places means he doesn't ever really have a home in either. And it's something that makes him kind of profoundly uncomfortable. Um, I think in terms of the Furies as well, I, th I think you, you worked very hard, or at least it comes across to me in that way, to to make them a little bit more personable as as characters so, and but they still remain don't they in that kind of I suppose liminal place is the best way of describing it you're not really sure whether whether you should empathize with them or whether you shouldn't or at least some of them um but but they've got a bit more substance to them haven't they in in your story I mean I'd like to think so and that that's deliberate too because it's not 
I don't think it works so well to have. I mean, I've written it before. I've written megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal villains <laughs> whose kind of only purpose is just doing quite bad things. And it's fine, but it's a bit two dimensional. And it's something that as as I write more and more and as I explore characterization more and more, it's less and less satisfying to both read and to write. Like I like in when I consume media, when I consume fiction, I like the characters who aren't good. I often like the villains, and but I like them best when I understand kind of the root of their villainy. And also when it's quite a mundane villainy as well. So when it is rooted in like pettiness and spite and jealousy um like I don't necessarily want highfalutin ideas in my villains anymore I want something a little more grounded in reality it gives them more substance though doesn't it I think which which is why you're attracted to those characters I think they're a bit more complex they they have a bit more substance to them than sometimes um arguably not in in your case for for reasons that you've already touched upon but in some stories which which essentially equate to the hero's or the heroine's journey actually you don't really connect as much with the hero or heroine because they don't have as much to them as some of the people that they're perhaps having to deal with I don't think they do and this is maybe skipping ahead a little but I think that's why the Greek myths are so enduring because everyone is always a little bit bad in them like the odyssey odysseus is awful he's got a whole book about him his whole journey he's a terrible man he kind of gets all of his entire crew killed sorry if you haven't read the odyssey there are some spoilers coming up he gets his entire crew killed over the course of 10 years mostly because he's messing around he cheats on his wife with two separate goddesses lingers quite a while like but all the time reminding these goddesses he's definitely going to go home to his wife, gets home to his wife only to put on a disguise, pretend to be someone else because he doesn't trust her, and then goes on a killing spree of all these poor slave women who have been kind of forced to have relations with um, his wife, Penelope's suitors. And he's just, he's hero, but then hero in Greek mythology um, kind of meant demigod. It didn't mean hero as, as we use it today. It meant someone who kind of, has the essence of the gods or the touch of the gods or is part god um yeah like i think i think a lot of why greek myths still resonate is because even the good guys are a little bit bad and even the bad guys you know are a little bit good like for all they throw around curses the gods often regret their actions and try to kind of modify them by offering immortality in the form of trees or stars or birds so there's for in human people, there's a lot of humanity to the gods and for, and there's a lot of kind of monstrousness in humans. And I think that's what appeals about Greek mythology, maybe more than any other kind of mythology. I think it's probably why it's the most prevalent and enduring. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it is. But um, why do you why do you consider that that these stories were so important in their own time? We can we can see perhaps why they why they still resonate with us now. Why were they so important in their original state? I think it's it's partially what I said earlier about they gods offer an explanation for the unexplainable. So the actions of gods is a very easy way to kind of explain a thing you don't understand. And with the Greek gods particularly, um, it it got almost a little childlike in how questions were answered. So why do spiders weave webs? Oh, because of arachne because of of the kind of the battle between well not the battle but 
Yeah, it is. Sewing can be a battle. The kind of battle between her and um, Athena. Um, why is X star in the sky? Why do kingfishers burrow the way they do? Where does halcyon days come from? Like all of these these questions for how things are. Why do we have seasons? Because of Persephone. Um, so all of these questions we have about how the world works and why the world works are answered by by these myths before we know, I mean, the science or the environmental science or the ecological science of how things work. We have these answers that come to us in the forms of stories. And I think that's why they were important at the time. Yeah, precisely. You, you're absolutely right. And then, of course, when we move forward in history and, and pass through the medieval and the early modern and these sorts of periods, we find exactly the same thing in different forms. Don't we? Mm-hmm. So the use of demons by the church to explain particular things that science or medicine can't explain and so on. Does that still happen now, do you think? Do we still have our own versions of this that are important for those sorts of reasons today? Or in the modern world, have we essentially just forgotten to use story in that way? No, I think it's like this. I think we still have superstition. Um, Astrology has certainly had um, a huge resurgence in the last few years. Like I quote mercury retrograde anytime anything in the mercury retrograde goes wrong i check my star sign i look i think no matter how rational you are you look for story in things as humans we want stories we want we want to understand and story offers a way to do that even if you know there is maybe a scientific element to it and that's astrology there is a little astrological science that comes into it so we know these things are based on actual astral events that are occurring celestial events that are occurring these conjunctions of stars and these movements of planets so they're always kind of all of this stuff is always rooted in reality it's just how how we choose to tell it back to ourselves and as humans we like stories we like to tell ourselves stories about who we are about what works about what doesn't about why things are happening to us and I think no matter how much education and science you bring into stuff people are always going to look for story even if they don't necessarily mean to. I, th- I think you're right, uh, and you know, I think you're you're one of a number of authors who who really kind of um, use that to its full effect. You know, we've had uh, Joanne Harris has been on a couple of times talking oh, about her. her work, and and she obviously draws on on very similar aspects um, in in many of her books. Um, Neil Gaiman. Is another person who springs to mind who hopefully will get on by the end of the year. We do keep trying, um, <laughs> and obviously he he works in a similar field as well. And and there are these these people yourself included with your work who who do that exact thing and use story in that way. Don't you? I think I think you're right. It's it's still very much alive in that respect. So you think because of this that there is still a relevance for these myths these days for that reason i think there is i think we can take out um perhaps some of the more misogynistic or violent or kind of murdery elements of them but i think there is still a use for myths in this day and age and i don't i don't think you can ever really shake them off i think everyone has had a moment where they've been frightened buy something and that like their first thought has not been the rational explanation you jump to ghosts you jump to monsters um and so I think mythology I think it does still have a place especially because we can repurpose it into into modern life and make it make sense I've just done it I I took an ancient story and made it 
about the modern world, completely about the modern world and a modern girl living in that world without, I hope, compromising too much of the original mythology or losing too much of the original mythology. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a compromise to be made, to drawn there at all. Um, uh, there isn't one to be made, in fact. Um, so how do you go about that? Tell, tell us a little bit about your processes for for writing with these sources are you very research heavy before you start or do you kind of like to develop as you go along I tend um when I start to just write from my brain so I know what my story looks like before I start adding anything else to it so I know the shape of my story I know I know what I know and then then I fact check then I research then I go back and I correct myself um, and then I add in the elements that are real were real um but i i think if i read too much at first it would become probably very dry well i tried to shoehorn in like the the danger of research is you don't want it to go to waste and so you try to put it all on page and then what you end up with is something that's very dry and it's like more akin to a textbook than a story so my first drafts are always and um, just what what i think i know and my version of the story and then then I do the hard work and I, I go back and almost kind of copy edit myself and figure out what's real, what's not real, what's possible, what isn't possible, what happened, what didn't happen. And then and feed that into the story there. But yeah, there is there is research that's involved, of course, um, but not. not yes, of course. But but then the, but then the interpretation and the development of that afterwards is, is equally as important isn't it and it's not it's something that you've done before let's let's be honest so um talk talk a little bit about your previous work about your back catalogue and and how else you've worked with folklore and mythology in some of your other books i think probably my first series is hugely rooted in fairy tale um and a little bit of a little bit of folklore. So it's the Sinita's Daughter series, and obviously it features a girl who is a Sinita's daughter. And I heard, I read about Sinita's in a Margaret Atwood book. I think it was her Dancing Girls collection. And I was like, like the the title of the story was the Sinita, and it's such a compelling title that I looked up and I was like, this is like gross. I've never heard of this. And then I couldn't get I couldn't get out of my head the idea of this girl who um was the heir to this horror and like would 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 inherit this so I did a lot of research into kind of the practices of sin eating and I made it worse much worse like I assigned sins to various foods so you could read the story of someone's life basically in the spread at their funeral you could read all of the kind of the terrible things that and and some of the virtues as well but it was mostly like sins and things that they had confessed and maybe not fully repented for and they were kind of consumed by this woman who would then take on this sin these sins and, and be the carrier of them and that would kind of be her like her legacy um and then from there I kind of I cherry-picked bits of fairy tales so the sleeping prince is kind of sleeping beauty but heavily heavily edited um and also the pied piper of Hamelin and I went to Hamelin and had a look around the town to kind of soak up um the vibes of it and I fed a lot of um folklore about alchemy um and and the practices of alchemy into those stories too and then more recently I guess hold back the tide is I think it's probably safe to spoil it now it's a vampire novel it, it's about vampires but also it's very rooted in Scotland and and 
kind of Scottish land and Scottish culture. I practice my grandmother Scottish. Um, and so I like, and also the, a little, um, her dark wings is almost set in Scotland. The island that it's set on it would be in our world, partway between Norway and Scotland. Yeah, and it's a it's an area that's very rich in in um, kind of folklore and, and culture to draw upon, isn't it? The whole kind of um, Scottish and, and northern from their area has a, a lot that you can work with. It is, and I think that's why I keep going back to it, where I keep going to places like Norway and Germany and Scotland to kind of root my stories because there is, it's so rich with local story and, and, and local folklore, and it's just, it's delicious. I love it. I, I, I mean, you don't just write fiction either do you so tell us a little bit about almanacs um i yeah i've written two almanacs the second one is out in august um i wanted because i am someone who likes nature a lot and likes spending time outside but um <laughs> live a very 21st century life and that i i live in a flat i don't have a garden um i don't have outdoor space of my own and i I realised I'd invented all of these practices to bring nature into my life. Like I garden, I grow tomatoes on my windowsill, a very abundant crop. Like I haven't bought a tomato yet this year because mine are doing so well. I grow my own basil, I grow salad leaves. Like it's not, I couldn't feed myself on a winter through it, but I can certainly save a little money doing it just on on indoor kitchen windowsills. Um, and so I started gathering up all of this stuff and all this stuff I'd learned about nature kind of through through land experience um and i i was originally going to self-publish it as a series of zines once a month for an entire year um that would kind of touch on on what you can see outside in nature what you could be growing um and and folklore ended up being a part of it too so i wanted to kind of because i think folklore and nature is so intertwined i don't think you can separate them out at all um and mythology as well you can't you can't separate those things from the natural world um even even urban folklore even modern folklore is rooted in cryptids and kind of beasts of the woods or beasts of the car parks um or those kinds of things and so folklore ended up creeping into that so every month um there is an element of folklore and or, or superstition um that is taken from folklore superstition <laughs> i guess um so yes yeah, so it's great that that got to feed in too yeah, it's, it, it just shows, doesn't it, that that um, I think the reason, um, amongst a few reasons actually, that that folklore has had such a resurgence and and why it is so popular these days is is that it is pervasive and it, it is you know wherever you turn, whether you actually think about it as folklore or not, it's really there under the surface and it's what connects us to everything that we do, isn't it? I think it is, and I th if we think about the things I do during a day that are rooted back in, in folklore and superstition. I see a single magpie, I salute it and wish it good morning. I see two, I congratulate myself on the joys to come. If I have two bad things happen, I snap a match to break the streak. Um, I believe things come in threes. Um, I'm very, I live... Do you walk under a ladder? No, God, but also that's very impractical and silly. Yeah. <laughs> like, give them a wide berth. <laughs> well, um, so yeah, like in, in my daily life, a lot of a lot of folklore feeds into it and i think it, it probably does because i was raised by someone who's like scottish and so very invested like my nan was a great feeder of story to me and a great feeder of folklore to me 
Um, she never she never shied away from the horrors of fairy tales. Um, and neither did I, because I was a kid, and kids love monsters and horror. Absolutely, and and the 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 Wayback Almanacs as well. Kind of they 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 follow on a, a you know a, a good and long tradition of these sorts of things as well. You know, it puts me in mind of something like the the Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady and these <laughs> these sorts of books, which which are when you look at them, essentially a collection of nature and folklore and, and musings on those things around us. So you're in good company with them, certainly. Good to know. Uh, finally, tell us a little bit about what you might do next. <laughs> well, guess what? It's rooted in folklore. Um, <laughs> it's I'm very superstitious talking about um, projects that aren't finished yet. Um, so let me, how can I do this in a satisfying way that doesn't betray? <laughs> Yes, don't break any <laughs> don't break any NDAs while you do it. But yeah, um, I'm currently writing three projects. Um, one is very modern. Actually, you know, two are very modern. One is rooted more in the supernatural, I think, than folklore. Although where these things cross over is, it's so blurred the lines between kind of all of that stuff um the second one is not but the third one the one the book that the well the story not the book yet the story that's not in my heart is again it's about gods um and desire and um the dangers of making deals with with things you don't necessarily understand um so, yeah, very in the tradition of fairy compacts, I guess, um, where be careful what you wish for because you might get it. I'm intrigued. I'm sure other people will be intrigued, too. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, in the meantime, I know lots of people are going to want to grab a copy of Her Dark Wings when it comes out, which is on July the 7th. Uh, in what formats will it be available? It will be available in paperback, in audiobook, and in ebook. From all the usual places where you buy books, independent bookshops are a great place to support if you can. Otherwise, there are many other places available that you can get them. And at the same time, I would certainly um, encourage people to have a look at one or two or more items from Melinda's back catalogue, which I think will also uh, be of great interest as we've discussed um for many people who will be listening to this episode so melinda thank you so much for taking the time this morning to come on and speak about your work it's been a pleasure to chat with you thank you so much for having me this has been great thanks to melinda for taking the time to discuss her dark wings the novel is published by david fickling books and is out now to buy the folklore podcast and the book club are the official podcasts of the folklore library and archive a volunteer-led organisation dedicated to collecting and preserving folklore in all forms and making it freely available for the future. You can learn more at www.folklorelibrary.com. If you can help us to keep our work going, please consider either joining the Folklore Podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast, where you can find extra content, or alternatively, you can make a one-off donation at www.folklorelibrary.com slash fundraising. If you can't help financially, then please do engage with us on social media and share our work. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time.